The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Welcome to My Life in Books. In this series, we interview some of Britain's favourite novelists about their lives, careers and the three books they love most. This week, our guest is the actress and writer Ruth Jones. She is best known for playing Nessa in Gavin and Stacey, the BBC TV comedy she co-wrote with James Corden, and also for starring in and writing the comedy series Stella, set in South Wales, where Ruth herself is from. Earlier this year, she also wrote her first novel, Never Greener, which tells the story of a rekindled affair. It sparked a ten-way publisher bidding war and was immediately propelled to the top of the bestseller charts. Ruth lives in South Wales with her husband David, but she travelled to the Telegraph offices in London to talk to Laura Powell about love, marriage and adjusting to life in the spotlight. So welcome to the Telegraph Books podcast, Ruth Jones. Hello. (laughs) Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So you're in the middle at the moment of this whirlwind publicity tour. You must be old hat by now, you know, with all of your TV press you've done. How's it all going? Well, it's funny, actually, you say that, but this is all new to me. The world of books and publishing is all brand new. And um, and I'm really enjoying it because it's, you know, it's it's just a, a really exciting journey. And I'm getting to go to... Uh, parts of the country that you know I've maybe been to once when I was a child. And what made you want to write a book? Well, it, it sort of happened by accident because I had written uh, about 14, 15 years ago, I wrote a screenplay, a two-part screenplay called Never Greener. And um, I mean, this is before I wrote anything else. Uh, and it, 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 I, nothing came of it. Um, I, I think I sent it to a couple of production companies, but nothing really happened. I forgot all about it. And then uh, a couple of years ago, I was um, I went away for a few days, sort of rejuvenation. I went to a little spa hotel, and <laughs> I was looking through my laptop in the evening, and I found uh, what was the original screenplay of Never Greener, which I read, and you know, it, there were bits of it that were making me cringe because the character was a little bit two dimensional, but the story was really good. And then I also found I'd obviously started about back then to 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 turn it into prose fiction and I found this thousand words of prose fiction and I just picked it up from where I left off really and I found myself I'd go off for a massage at this uh, spa place and I'd rush back to my room because I just wanted to to write really you got into it that quickly I got into it really quickly and I I just loved being with the characters. I loved being able to go inside their heads. Are you a bit of a workaholic then? You know, most people go to switch off in the in the spa. Well, the thing was, I was really enjoying it. I think as well, because at that point it was a, it, you know, nobody commissioned me. I didn't have a deadline. It was purely a labour of love. And it, so it was really, really enjoyable. And you know? a lot of novelists say they have to be quite obsessive about it as well. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think... I just loved the characters and uh, and also going back and forth because the novel is set in 1985 and then 2002. Uh, so for me, you know, a lot of it, the, the sort of the, the second storyline in the novel is set at Warwick University. And uh, I did go to Warwick University between 1985 and, and 1988. So... 
that was a joy for me because I was able to just sort of plunder my my memories of three of the happiest years of my life. Yeah, that's brilliant. I'd love to come back to that in a minute, actually, because I went to Warwick as well, oddly Never. enough. I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it is amazing. And I recognise some of the little little things that you picked up in there. So I want to talk about that in a minute. Mm. Um, now, you wrote Gavin and Stacey with um, James Corden and you wrote Stello. Am I right in thinking you wrote that with your husband? We created it together and then there were a couple of episodes that we worked on together but mainly I suppose I wrote m- more more of them and I was like a showrunner on it as well so um, but you but obviously novel writing is a completely different discipline you're on your own in a room did you sort of go a bit mad being on your own and you know having been in such a collaborative tv world to then being well it's funny actually because screenwriting can also be quite solitary uh, although obviously you have more meetings with people you have discussions about you know so David and I would do the storylining together and then we talk to the script editor and so yeah it is much more collaborative and also of course writing Gavin and oh my tummy's rumbling did you hear that in the sandwich um <laughs> obviously writing Gavin and Stacey with James we were we never wrote separately on that we were always together writing it can, it, can you like paint me a picture of what it was like the actual writing workshops of you together it was funny actually because James and I met on Fat Friends which was an ITV series about Slimming Club and that was a brilliant series. It was good. Wasn't I wish it? they'd bring it back. I don't understand why they never repeat it. I really don't. Is that Kay Meller? Yeah, she's such a good, yeah. brilliant writer. I don't know why they don't bring it back. Um, but we met so, and we were talking. When, it was when we were doing the first series, um, and we were talking about uh, this idea that James had had about a wedding between a Welsh girl and an English boy and um, we just used to sit in the bar and we'd look at people who were staying at the hotel where we were and imagine them being guests at the at the wedding this kind of thing and and we'd sort of emmed and ahed and toed and froed about it and then we were going on something like this morning to promote Fat Friends and so we'd been staying in the same hotel the night before and I said look why don't we do this thing? Why don't we write this treatment? Because we've, you know, otherwise we're never going to, it's never going to happen and we're just going to keep talking about it and nothing will happen. So we sat down and we wrote this treatment and it was a one-off drama uh, about a girl, a Welsh girl and an English boy and there'd be all these characters in there like the sort of the geeky uncle and the drunken aunt and uh, there'd be the two best friends and and we sent it into. um to Stuart Murphy who was at BBC Three then and he said look I love this but he said I, we, ha- we haven't got a slot for like a one-off drama he said why don't you backtrack the story to when they first met and have the wedding as the final episode so that's what we did so when we I remember I remember so clearly when we wrote the first episode we 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 had three sessions so we actually wrote it in 24 hours and I remember 24 hours? Yeah, I mean, not, but I mean, 24 actual hours. So we had like oh, right. three okay. eight hour sessions. Yeah. Um, and I remember the, the writing, the, I don't know if, how well you know it, but there's a whole sequence in episode one of the first series where Bryn has bought this rape alarm for Stacey to take to London. And <laughs> we were in this hotel in West London, and I remember 
writing it and we were literally we were crying laughing so much and <laughs> we used to act out you see we used to act out the the characters because that's how we we knew whether it sounded right and what you'd be Bryn and you'd yeah, yeah so okay. we'd swap around and yeah and um and I remember we were do, reading that speech and we were crying laughing at and we just said do you know what if nobody likes this we do, and we've had a really good time <laughs> writing it. So, um, and it kind of went from there, really. Was it always that fun working um, on it? No, there were times when it, when it, you know, James and I had quite a sort of. Um, uh, sometimes it could be quite volatile, <laughs> like because it, you know I'm 12 years older than him, and he's like an annoying little brother, and I'm like an annoying older sister. So uh, we did, you know, we did row sometimes. What, did each, what qualities did each of you bring to the partnership? Um, James would probably say I brought my typing skills. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you brought far more than typing skills, um, and. Uh, I don't know, really. I think because we were both actors, we could we could improvise the scenes, and um, we we were pretty much good at um, saying if we didn't think something worked or something didn't sound right. We were quite quite honest in that respect. But we used to be terribly lazy. I mean, we used to we wrote all over the place. We when we first started, James would come down to my um, house in Cardiff, and we'd sit in my little. Uh, lean to with the electric heater on <laughs> the leaking ceiling uh, and then or I'd go up to his he had a flat above a Chinese takeaway in um, in Beaconsfield and uh, we used to just you know we we, we were we were pretty um, uh, determined to get things done but we used to be like we would have to have a nap so we literally would go have lunch and we'd come back and we'd have a little nap. And sometimes we'd be in rented offices. Um, there was a rented office in Oxford Street that we used to go to. And uh, we would literally, like, lie on the table and just have a sleep. And sometimes... Sorry, remember... I'm trying to cover the mic. <laughs> I'm wetting myself laughing in the corner over here. Well, I remember once somebody came, came in, because they were rented offices, <laughs> somebody came in to show a, pot a potential client around this office space, and we were both, like, lying down. And James just... <laughs> he didn't even open his eyes, and these people came in. <laughs> and I think he just went, shh. <laughs> <laughs> and we just carried on, and we used to do stupid things like that. Like Brilliant. if we'd if we'd be in a hotel room, um, sometimes if the the lady came in to to clean the room, um, she, we'd hear a knock and go um, housekeeping, and uh, we wouldn't answer. She'd come in, and James and I would pretend that we were like. Really, it's a bit mean actually. We pretend we were really upset about something, or I'd pretend I was crying, head in hand, and James would be comforting me, and he'd just sort of look at the lady and just go, shh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was, it it was like good fun, fun but we did used to we did used to argue as well, yeah. you know. But um, but uh, in a kind of it, it didn't really last very long. No, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, both of your careers have done tremendously, amazingly since. Um, would, had you ever considered following him to LA and sort of moving there as well, or are you happy in Cardiff? No, I just, I, it sounds, well, I don't know, maybe a bit peevish of him, but I just don't have any desire to go um, over there. I don't know if it's, a, maybe it's an age thing, but then again, I know people who've gone over their late 40s, early 50s, Um but no, I'm I'm a bit of a home bird, I think, and I just love I love being here. 
You must still get recognised all the time, though, especially in South Wales. Um, yes, I do. But it's, I mean, gosh, I remember James came once. He was filming. I oh, was doing the um, that film he did about uh, Paul Potts. And he came over my house when he had an afternoon off or something. And we went for lunch just sort of near where I live in Cardiff. And it was ridiculous. And that was before he did his chat show. Um, and people would just, like, stop in the car and beeping at him and everything. And I thought, oh, gosh. How do you cope with it? Well, I don't get it. I, I, to an ex- yeah, to an extent. I, 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 mean. I, I do get people... I'm terrible, really, because if I can get away with it, I will. So, like, I picked my friend up from the station the other night and um, as, I, as she was getting in the car, this guy leaned into my car and he went, excuse me, do you mind me saying, you really look like that actress? <laughs> and I went, oh, I know, I get that all the time. <laughs> um, and I do try and not admit to it if I can help it I, I'm not very good at having selfies when I'm just sort of on my day to day because I, I, you know like sometimes people they sort of think it's their right to have a photograph of you and you want to go right let's reverse this okay if you've just woken up you haven't got any makeup on you're looking absolutely pants would you want to have your somebody wanted my photo in the gym once when I was dripping with sweat <laughs> oh, and it's yes? the way they go oh my god I gotta have a selfie. <laughs> no, you don't got to have a selfie, and you're not going to have one. <laughs> I'm you just a grumpy carry, old woman. You need to carry a little packet of photographs in your pocket, <laughs> yes. and then they can just you can just sign it and give that instead. Well, you know, gone are the days where you used to just do an autograph for somebody. Like Hattie Jakes, she used to sell her autographs for charity, which I thought was a brilliant idea. She'd say, "Yes, you've got to give me whatever it was, fifty p for for the, her, the." She used to support a lot of charities. I think that's a really good idea. Hey, that'd be a good holiday fund as well. It would actually, yeah. Get yourself a caravan in Pathcourt. Yes, quite. Um, well, we're here as well today to talk about the books that mean most to you in life. Um, and you're going to talk about four in total. So the first one that you're going to talk about is one that you loved as a child. Um, can you tell me a bit about that first book and why you chose it? Yeah, well, I chose David Copperfield um, because my grandmother gave it to me to read when I was about 10. I can, and I can remember I can remember the paper in the book. I remember the paper being really, really thin and it being this huge book and just being sort of a bit overwhelmed by it. But it's always stayed with me that I learnt the word posthumous from... Because <laughs> I think it's on the first page of David Copperfield. I was a posthumous child. <laughs> so I, I love getting that word in sometimes when I'm uh, having conversations. <laughs> going, oh, yes, uh, he was born um, posthumously. Or I'd, actually, I probably misused the word now, having, having showed off about it. But, um, uh, yeah, so... so and, and I think when you read a book as a child... And then you come back to it later, you see a completely different uh, landscape, I guess. And I came back to it again then for A-level and, oh gosh, I just thought, this is amazing. His descriptions are wonderful. They they really are full of wonder and... uh, The characters that he creates, you know, somebody like Betsy Trotwood, to me, she is like a Victorian version of my character Nessa, I think, (laughs) because she's got that kind of harsh softness about her. So she's, she's a, a, you wouldn't mess with her, but she is somebody you want on your team. 
Um, so yeah, I loved I, I loved David Copperfield. That's the book I would probably take with me if I had to be stranded on a desert island. Fantastic. Now we're going to hear a short reading from it. An aunt of my father's, and consequently a great aunt of mine, of whom I shall have more to relate by and by, was the principal magnate of our family. Miss Trotswood, or Miss Betsy, as my poor mother always called her, when she sufficiently overcame her dread of this formidable personage to mention her at all, which was seldom, had been married to a husband younger than herself, who was very handsome, except in the sense of the homely adage, handsome is that handsome does, for he was strongly suspected of having beaten Miss Betsy, and even of having once, on a disputed question of supplies, made some hasty but determined arrangements to throw her out of a two-pair-of-stairs window. These evidences of an incompatibility of temper induced Miss Betsy to pay him off and effect a separation by mutual consent. He went to India with his capital, and there, according to a wild legend in our family, he was once seen riding on an elephant in the company with a baboon. But I think it must have been a baboo or a begum. Anyhow, from India, tidings of his death reached home within ten years. How they affected my aunt, nobody knew. For immediately upon the separation, she took her maiden name again, bought a cottage in a hamlet on the sea coast a long way off, established herself there as a single woman with one servant, and was understood to live secluded ever afterwards in an inflexible retirement. Uh, that was a reading from David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. So, Ruth, um, you're one of four children. You grew up in Porthcawl in South Wales, or I don't know if you call it Porthcawl or Puthcawl. Puthcawl. Yeah. <laughs> it depends if you're being posh or not, because if you're being posh, you say Porthcawl. Yeah. And uh, and if you're kind of like caught off guard a bit, you say Puthcawl. It's a bit like Patolbert and Port Tolbert. Um but Porthcawl, yeah, my, my, my husband said to me once, it sounds like I say, I'm saying I'm a call girl from Porth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I say I'm a Porthcawl girl. But yeah, lovely, uh, lovely um, seaside town in between Cardiff and Swansea. Were you always a sort of a storyteller and a performer when you were growing up? Yeah, I think so. I think I was a, I was a bit of a show off I mean I my so my brothers are older than me and then I've got my younger sister but before my sister Maria came along I remember the the two sentences that were shouted out the most in our house was me shouting mum the boys are fighting and my brothers <laughs> shouting mum Ruth's overreacting <laughs> but and did I, you not say mum <laughs> No, not in Porthcawl, you don't really? say ma'am. It's because you're a Valleys girl, you see. Valleys girls say ma'am, and then yeah. Cardiff girls say mum, so yeah. I used to... No, oh, I, I didn't realise that yeah. Porthcawl people were the posh sort. <laughs> <laughs> um, Brilliant. Yeah, no, it was a lovely... Uh, I had a very lovely childhood, I was very lucky, and, uh, uh, and uh, you know, living by the sea, of course... We literally were living. Well, you know, you said yourself that you used to go there in summer holidays. It was a, a holiday resort, really. But yeah, so growing up there, were you quite ambitious as a youngster? I mean, did you always think that you'd move away from Pathcall and, you know. No, I didn't. When I. I suppose when I was growing up, for starters, although I enjoyed, you know, showing off and I used to go to Pathcall Little Theatre, which my grandmother took me to, and then 
when I went to school, to the secondary school, I used to do the school shows and I was in musicals. Rob Brydon went to my school and uh, we used to be in musicals together. And I did youth theatre. But I did it because I really enjoyed it. I loved I loved being on stage and I just loved the whole thing of, you know, putting on an accent, being a character. But I genuinely didn't think I could do it professionally. And I... I, I suppose so. I never imagined myself as a professional actress. Um, I, I, I think. Well, I think I wanted to be a journalist when I was growing up. Um, that was what I wanted to do. But I, I read that you wanted to be journalist. a solicitor once as well. Yeah, that, that was late, that came later on. Right. Um, but I, I, I never thought of of acting. I just, uh, you know, to earn money. Yeah, I just didn't no. think that that would happen. Well, <laughs> well journalism <laughs> wouldn't have earned you money. So yeah. Good job you did that. Um, but when you look back now, do you think there was something about you and Rob Bryden, um, who you've stayed friends with, that other people could see, oh, yeah, they're, they're a bit special, something's going to happen for them? Well, I certainly think with Rob that pe- people did. I mean, I can remember seeing Rob for the first time in, when he, he came to our school when he was about 15, I think, and... Uh, and I remember thinking, oh, he's so funny and he's so, and he could do all these voices. And I remember he gave me, for my birthday, um, he did a recording as Elvis Presley, like a, as if Elvis Presley was talking. Uh, and he had, um, oh, Parisian Walkways, Gary Moore, is it, that song? And he had that in the background and then he, he did this whole message as Elvis, a birthday message for me. I must try Brilliant. and find it. Can you give us an impression <laughs> of what it sounded like? <laughs> I couldn't do the, the, the justice that Rob Brydon could do. Um, but he went really quite quickly into uh, professional, you know, he, I think he left drama school early to go and work on Radio Wales. He was always destined to, to do really, really well. And meanwhile, you went off to Warwick and you said that they were the three of the happiest years of your life. Yeah. What was it about Warwick that you loved? Well, my parents were sort of keen that I went to university. And back then, there weren't many universities that did drama degrees. Um, and I got interviews at uh, three of them, but I only got an offer from Warwick. And <laughs> when I went to Manchester for my interview, my dad was really keen for me to go to Manchester because he went there. Uh, but it was never going to work out because they asked us to talk about a production that we'd seen recently. And there was a, I remember there was a girl outside called Ray and she wore a beret and she was really trendy. And she said, oh, yeah, I'm going to talk about uh, Mother Courage. I've just been to this amazing <laughs> production. Uh, what are you going to talk about? And I went, um, well, I've just been to London and I saw Cats, <laughs> musical Cats. And uh, so I, I wasn't feeling terribly confident at, at that point. And then when I went in and they said to me, so tell us about your um, your bedtime reading at the moment. What are you reading at the moment? I went, Jackie Collins, Hollywood Wives. Brilliant. It was just a silence. <laughs> so that was never going to happen. But when I went to my interview at Warwick, um, I was interviewed by Clive Barker and I just always send up a silent little prayer of gratitude that he interviewed me because he loves uh, well he's no longer with us he loved musicals so that was something I really did know about and I could talk about musicals so I got offered a place and um, I remember getting my A-level results uh, and of course you know in those days you didn't have mobile phones and I was on a youth theatre course National Youth Theatre of Wales and there were a few of us waiting for our A-level results and we had to queue up for the coin box 
to ring our parents to find out what we'd got. And um, and I remember my dad, bless him, my dad had gone up to get my results for me and he came back and he said, Ruth, you got an A in English, a B in history and a B in drama. And I went, I'm going to Warwick, Dad, I'm going to Warwick. And I was so excited. Oh, and what did so he excited. say? Was he... he was over the moon. He loved a qualification, my dad. Absolutely <laughs> loved it. Or a certificate, anything like that. Anything with some letters on it, he loved it. And then when you went, were they your people in Warwick? Or were they like Jackie Collins readers too? Were they like that girl in Manchester? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, I mean... It, it was quite an um, an eye-opener for me because, you know, I'd not really been outside of Wales that much. I mean, apart from family holidays, we were lucky enough to go to France and that. But uh, And I was just very conscious of my accent. I can remember being really self-conscious because everybody, there, were, there was no, there weren't any other Welsh people on my course. So everybody was... And I can't remember there being any Scots, actually. It was, everybody was English and the south of England and a couple of northerners. And um, so I, I was really conscious of my accent. We went on a march once against uh, education cuts and Norman Fowler was the education secretary then. And um, I remember <laughs> we walked along going, uh, and everyone was going, Fowler, 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 out, out, out. And I was going, <laughs> Fowler, 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 out, out, out. <laughs> That's absolutely brilliant. I'd have been exactly the same. I think when I went to Warwick, actually, I was probably one of the few um, in my halls of residence with a strong Welsh accent, and I've lost it now. But having you here in the studios brought it back. Um, but anyway, I've heard that there was another funny story as well that you had when you first went to Warwick. Didn't you turn up with some Welsh cakes on your first day? My mum gave me, I mean, I can't, saying goodbye to my parents when they took me to the... Because my brother had been... Uh, one, of, one of my brothers had been away to... Um, he went to Plymouth, uh, which was Plymouth Poly back then. And um, But there was just something... Oh, it was just so traumatic saying goodbye to my mum and dad. And I remember my mum had given me this tin of Welsh cakes. And she said, oh, you know, you might want to offer them round because uh, just to give you a, a bit of a an icebreaker for you to meet people on your corridor... And um, <laughs> so I and so I did. And uh, how I, did they go down? Very well. Well, my friend Lucy, who I met on the first day, uh, we remained friends uh, ever since that first day because it was so. And I'm sure that was because I sort of offered the the Welsh cakes. <laughs> I changed it to rock cakes in the novel. No, well, it's a fabulous book, and I want to come back a bit more to the writing process. But first, move on to your second book that you've chosen for today. So, what what is it? It's one that you've read quite recently, I understand. My second book is called Reasons to Stay Alive by Matt Haig, and um, I was given it actually by a friend. A friend was reading it and was getting loads from it and uh, it probably isn't something I would have picked up to read but you know sometimes when somebody gives you something you think oh well you know they're they're getting something from this and it was an eye-opener it was an absolute such a revelation it's about depression and it's written Matt Haig obviously has lived with depression and um, his account of what I suppose everybody has a different experience, but from his experience of depression, what he went through was so alarmingly honest. But there was something really calming about it. And I just thought he, the way he writes, he takes the panic out of 
a condition that so many people um, experience today. And I, I, I can't recommend it enough, really. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> now we're going to have a short reading from the book. I was 24. I was living in Spain, in one of the more sedate and beautiful corners of the island of Ibiza. It was September, and within a fortnight, I would have to return to London and reality. After six years of student life and summer jobs, I put off being an adult for as long as I could, and it had loomed like a cloud. A cloud that was now breaking and raining down on me. The weirdest thing about a mind is that you can have the most intense things going on in there, but no one else can see them. The world shrugs. Your pupils might dilate. You may sound incoherent. Your skin might shine with sweat. And there was no way anyone seeing me in that villa could have known what I was feeling. No way they could have appreciated the strange hell I was living through. Or why death seemed such a phenomenally good idea. Uh, that was a reading from Reasons to Stay Alive by Matt Haig. And so, Ruth, after you left Warwick, um, how swift was your journey to becoming an actress? And Well, um, I was quite lucky because my... Um when I was at Warwick, <laughs> uh, I, were, I was very good friends and still am with Dominic Cook, who's a theatre director. When he, we left, I went to Cardiff to the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama uh, for a year. And whilst I was there, he was busy setting up a theatre company, a middle a middle scale touring company. So anyway, he set this company up and it was to tour with a production of The Marriage of Figaro, the Beaumarchais version, but Dominic did a, an adaptation of it. Um, and I played the Countess, Countess Alma Viva. And uh, I, we went, I, so I finished my, my course at, at Welsh College and then in the, in the November, we started rehearsing in London and then we went off on tour um, and I just thought, this is amazing. This is what it's going to be like. This is, I am now a professional actress and uh, and I'm doing, you know, touring the country. We went to Northern Ireland and up to uh, Scotland and it was fantastic. So I finished the tour of Marriage of Figaro and um, I found myself in London buying the stage newspaper every week, applying for like theatre and education jobs, um, and profit share jobs and all this kind of thing, not getting anywhere at all. So I started temping for Kensington and Chelsea Borough Council in the edu in the education department, and um, I just thought, oh, this is it? I I failed. So I, I I'm not going. I thought I thought it was all it all started so well, and now it's completely fallen apart. Was it not exciting, like the chase of it all and looking for jobs, or is that just sort of something you see in films? Not really. I think yeah. I think it's. It, 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 because the truth is, you still have to. You know, I was earning, um, I was earning 150 pounds a week temping, and my rent was 50 quid. And it, by the time, you know, there was, I was just getting into debt as well, yeah. and not doing what I wanted to do. And I, it was really demoralising. And that's when I thought, I'm going to just have to change careers. Or I'll become a solicitor. <laughs> and I went back to Cardiff and. Literally the next day when I was going to be heading out to go and find out how I do a conversion course to, to, to be a lawyer, thank God I didn't become a lawyer. I would have been have awful. Been a, really? Oh, I'd have been terrible. I'd have been absolutely terrible. Um, <laughs> uh, I got a, a, 
uh, phone call um, because one of the letters I'd written to numerous people had sort of come good and I was offered uh, a job. It was to be like an assistant stage manager, shifting scenery, making props and... um, for a pantomime in my hometown, Porthcawl. And one of the other things I had to do was I had to be a ninja turtle in the pantomime. So, you know, that's Which well, one? Which one? Michelangelo. Oh, you're absolutely. The ninja turtle the then. Nin- <laughs> there is, yes, exactly. But it was, it was slow. I mean, it was, you know, I did lots of other jobs. Uh, I, I hear of people who... They say, oh, I never did any other job except that. I think, flipping heck. I mean, I'd waitressed and uh, I've, I've cleaned toilets. I, you know, I've d- I, I did do quite a lot of different things that weren't acting then when I started out. And when you, when was the time you realised that you were sort of a, an actress, like not just an actress trying to make ends meet, but you knew that the jobs were going to keep coming? I think in... Um, this industry it well probably in every industry actually but you know as the time goes by you make connections and you meet people and and then they'll think of you for something else and um so I sort of I I did do a couple of theatre jobs which I thought oh yeah I, I I got a job with the RSC and um that was but that was through Dominic you see because Dominic was was uh, assistant director there so he got me an audition and I was in a production of um, uh, All's Well oh gosh I can't remember what it was now All's Well Ends Well yeah um, and I had to say one line and I can still remember it I'd say come let us return again and suffice ourselves with a report of it that was my line and Emily Watson was in that production I was just wondering because Kate your character in your novel is an actress yes. and she's sort of played by self-doubt and she's always sort of you know worried even when even though she's hugely successful and established is that is she an extreme example or is that I know it's not you but is that something a lot of actresses and actors that you've seen have experienced and I think experience? I think it's all about the public persona and the private angst and I think uh, you know you don't have to be an a- actor or an actress to go through that. I think um, Kate has got this private hell that she's going through this turmoil, but she's amazingly professional on the outside and, and is good at her job, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think I, 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 I like to think that I'm professional and that I try to do a professional job, I suppose. But um, the self-doubt, I think, is... I think that comes with the territory with being uh, any sort of performer because you just, you're all the time thinking, am I good enough? Am I a fraud? I am a fraud. I'm going to be discovered as a fraud. Surely you don't think that now at this stage in your career? Um, I sometimes, I think I'm just more honest now, but, 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 you know, like, for example, I don't know who people are. I don't know who famous people are. And I used to be really embarrassed about that. Like, I think, you know, somebody would mention a name of somebody and I'd go, I think, I don't know who that is. But I wouldn't let on that I didn't know. Whereas now I just go, I'm really sorry, I don't know who that is. <laughs> so I think you get uh, more honest as you get older about your shortcomings. So your next book that you're going to speak about is actually written by a very famous actress and famous comedian. (laughs) That was my smooth segue into it. Um, It's written by Dawn French um, and it's Dear Fatty. Why did you choose that book? Um, Dawn French, I have to say, I've always just had such massive admiration for. I mean, I loved French and Saunders 
when I was, um, I guess, in my late teens, early 20s, uh, I just, and I wanted to be Dawn French and all of those things. And uh, I just thought she was so, obviously so funny, but so warm and passionate and uh, beautiful. Um, I sound like I've got a real girl crush on her. I suppose I did. Yeah, well, then I, and then I met her and... um, she, I, I used to have a, a radio show, and she, I interviewed her uh, on my radio show, and I, I, she was just fascinating. And I read Dear Fatty before I interviewed her, and to me, I, I think she's absolutely nailed the whole autobiography style there because she's in control. She can choose what she wants to talk about, and she's done it through a series of letters. So they're all letters to people, in very significant people in her life, or insignificant. You know, there's no sort of uh, kind of rhyme nor reason to it, I guess. And I just found it. I literally was crying, laughing, like when she talks about her her first pony, uh, and and also crying with sorrow when she talks about very painful experiences like losing her father so um yeah i'm still a massive fan of torn french now we're going to hear a reading from it anyway 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 a friend of mine a young surfer in newlin told me he had an unfortunate incident last summer when his cousin from milton Keynes came to visit the cousin hadn't been out in the sun at all and certainly not on the beach So he was as white as a milk bottle and rather shy and unconfident in his brand new Speedo swimming trunks. My friend told him he needed to strut up and down the beach to attract the attention of young ladies and that it would really help if he were to put a potato in his Speedos, that this would undoubtedly rouse their interest. The cousin thought this was a bit strange. I think I would have concurred with that. I've never heard of that technique before. It must be a modern thing among the youth. Anyway, 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 the cousin did want to attract young ladies, so he apparently slipped a potato, a King Edward, I think, not a new one, that would be silly, into his speedos and off he went to the beach. It was a little bit cumbersome, as I'm sure you can imagine, but eventually he got the hang of it and started parading up and down for all the pretty ladies to see. However, not one of them seemed at all interested, and when the cousin returned to my friend, he said, Sorry, mate, but this potato down the speedos idea isn't working. The girls aren't remotely interested. In fact, they seem a bit repulsed. To which my friend was forced to retort, I think you'll find it works much better, mate, if you put the potato down the front of your speedos. Can you believe that? That was a reading from Dear Fatty by Dawn French. So Ruth, and let's turn and talk about your book for a bit now. It's called Never Greener and it's about an affair between Kate, an actress, and Callum, a teacher. Tell me a little bit about it. She, um, yes, so Kate in 1985, when she's in her early 20s, she has an affair with a man called Callum and Callum is married and he has three children, uh, well, two children, one on the way. And um, it's, all it all ends very messily and horribly and uh, they go their separate ways and then 17 years later they run into each other 
by accident. Uh, at this stage, Kate is now a very successful television actress and film actress. Um, and uh, Callum, uh, who was always a teacher, uh, is is teaching at a school where <laughs> Kate is making a, a, a you know doing a, a celebrity appearance, and so they bump into each other, a totally out of the blue, totally unexpected, and it's a, a really like heart stopping moment for her. Um, and then as a result, what they should have done really in real life is gone their separate ways again, but they don't. And then there's the resulting mess that follows. <laughs> no, it's really absolutely brilliant read. Um, what was it inspired by? Where did the idea come from about that lost love? Well, I, because, I, you know, as, as I said, the screenplay that it was based on was written, for, you know, 14, 15 years ago. Uh, this was before Facebook. Uh, but what people were quite into back then was Friends Reunited. Oh, I remember. Yeah. Did you on that? I did for a bit. Yeah, I did for a bit. To really, because to meet, you know, to get in touch with old friends, really. Um, but I, I came off it because I. It started, and this is why I don't do social media now. I don't do Facebook or Twitter it, it, because the, people started to get a little bit nasty about making, you know, comments about people from school, and I thought, oh no, I don't want to be part of this. So I did it for a little while, but I heard a lot of stories about, um, fr- you know, people who contacted old friends and old flames, and the ones who'd contacted the old flames sometimes they literally left their happy marriages or whatever and set up with the, the person they used to go out with when they were 16. Uh, so it was that idea, really, of thinking... I mean, that's why it's called Never Greener is... Exactly, grass is always of, greener. The type, grass is always yeah. greener on the other side, but it isn't really. It's just still grass, just a different patch of it. You've got this amazing way of making you feel sorry or feel some sort of like love for every single character, no matter oh. how flawed they are. <laughs> how do you do that? Because you've done that in your TV as writing as well, but you've just got this way of making characters so lovable despite their flaws. Oh, thank you. Well, I think, you know, um, there's, you know, I'm often saying to myself, there but for the grace of God go I, because everybody's you know everybody makes mistakes and nobody's perfect and um i also think there's a there's a lot to be said for there's a little bit of good in the worst of us and a little bit of bad in the best of us you know the, there yeah. is no kind of full on perfect person who gets everything right all of the time um and i i think also fallible characters are more interesting Really? Yeah, no. And to be honest, every single character in the book is flawed, apart from possibly Belinda, who's the <laughs> wife of Callum, who um, who's the, the man who has the, the affair, one of the main characters. Yeah. And I think she's the only person in the book who's sort of this perfect throughout. Yeah, and she's Welsh, so she yeah, has exactly. to be perfect. <laughs> exactly. I love the fact you've got a few little Welsh turns of phrase in there. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it felt, uh, obviously, the, the other thing is, I should say that the novel is set uh, primarily in Scotland, in Edinburgh and in London um, but I had to have a little bit of Welsh in there somewhere because um, I'd feel out of my comfort zone if I didn't have <laughs> a Welsh accent to play with um, but the, 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 and, and what, actually one of the reasons I set it in, in Edinburgh and uh, London is because I wanted there to be distance uh, 
between Callum and Kate. So they had that kind of um, hurdle to overcome. Um, but also I think Edinburgh is a, a very romantic city and dramatic and quite sexy as well. Yeah, so. absolutely. Um, I know you've been very careful to say that it's completely non-personal, non-autobiographical. But in terms of the romance and the feeling things, did you draw on your own life experience at all for any of those feelings? No, I didn't actually. Um, I, you know, it, it really is a, a work of fiction and um I, and of course, I wrote it. The, originally, the the idea was sort of fifteen years ago, and um, it, it it was. I remember sort of feeling a sense of oh, I wonder how kind of daring I can be, and it's it's very interesting. I've noticed that people don't. When I've done interviews about um, Gavin and Stacey or Stella or you know, stuff that I've done on TV, I don't get asked, "Is it? Oh, is it based on your?" on your own life but with the book it's almost like people want it to be and I kind of go it ain't an autobiography (laughs) if I wanted to write an autobiography I'd have written one do you think because um there's the internal monologue you get in books that you don't get in tv and so you always assume you know the author well as a result I do think that I think there's an there's an intimacy that you have with um uh the right a, a novelist because it is being told to you by one person whereas I suppose if you're watching something on screen you feel you're getting you know all these performances you're getting the writer there may have been several writers working on it um you've got the producer's input the director's input and all of that kind of thing but I think yeah a book is definitely more intimate no absolutely moving on to the final um reading you're going to give us a reading from Never Greener um, but first, I've got one last question for you. Yes. So the book started out as a screenplay. Mm. And as I was reading it, I had exact actors and actresses in my mind of who would play who. Uh, but I'd like to ask you who you would cast as your dream cast if this was turned. Oh, do you know what? Somebody else asked me this and I I have no idea. Because also, I, I don't know, even though it did start off as a screenplay, I don't know whether it would work as a screenplay now I mean you'd have to have uh, an actress who could play 24 and 41 uh, and then subsequently it does go even later than than that Um, you'd need you know there's five sort of substantial characters in there Um, what about Kate and Callum just the main the couple who have the affair do you know the only thing I know is that if it did go on screen, I would like to play Belinda. <laughs> Do you know what? It's funny you should say that because I saw you as Belinda throughout did the whole you? thing. Um, Callum, I hope you don't mind me saying, Dominic West. Through and through. Yes. Oh, gosh. And he can do a Welsh accent, I think, as well. Yeah. Quite well. Oh, he's brilliant at accents, isn't he? Yeah. Who did did you have in mind? You must have had somebody. I honestly didn't. I I honestly didn't. The the only... um, thing I I did think was about for the audio book because I didn't want to um, do the audio book myself and mainly because I didn't want to read the sex scenes <laughs> it just felt weird uh, so um, and I and I suggested Sharon Small and indeed Sharon Small is doing it and, oh fantastic yeah and it's lovely actually to have a, a, a Scottish accent um, I think that lends itself brilliantly to the book brilliant so. well I think we're going to hear a reading now is lovely. it and this is the scene when is this when they reunite later in life um, Kate and Callum so um, so she's gone gone there and she's met Mr Boyd, the headmaster, and uh, he's taking her up to this classroom to um, meet the meet the kids. And uh, she doesn't expect, she has no idea what's going to be on the other side of the door. 
They'd stopped outside the final classroom. This used to be Mrs Jackson's room when Kate was there nearly 30 years ago, but now the plate on the door bore the name of a different teacher. Mr McGregor. Kate felt simultaneously sick and exhilarated. It couldn't be, could it? A loud rushing in her ears and she subtly steadied herself with her hand on the doorframe. Fortunately, Mr Boyd didn't notice. Kate gathered herself. Not Callum McGregor. The headmaster knocked enthusiastically on the door. That's right. Joined us last year from St Mary's in Portobello. Deputy head, quite a coup. A voice came from inside the room. Come in. Kate couldn't focus, could barely hear. Her mouth felt like it was filled with sand. The headmaster, still wittering, opened the door and made way for her to go in. But her feet wouldn't move. She stood rooted to the herringbone tiles of the junior school corridor floor. Sitting at his desk, in front of a class full of excitable 11-year-olds, was the man she had fallen in love with 17 years ago. Her voice wouldn't work. Nothing would work. Callum looked at her, gentle, unsurprised. Hello, Kate. That was a reading from Never Greener by Ruth Jones. Ruth Jones, thank you very much for sharing your life in books. Thank you very much to you. I've had a lovely time. That's it for this first series of My Life in Books. Thank you to all of our guests, Louis de Bernier, Marion Keyes, Sebastian Folks, Jojo Moyes and Ruth Jones. Please stay subscribed to this feed for future updates. And thank you for listening.